thought capital. The world changed dramatically. Sustainable business practices. Phenomenally important with young people. Riding the Chinese tiger. Leadership goes beyond making a profit. Let's be forward thinking. We do need to accommodate difference. Hello, I'm Michael Pascoe. If we're ever to have equality. Welcome to Thought Capital, the podcast that delves into the wealth of ideas created by the experts at Monash Business School in Melbourne, Australia. Digital disruption, the fourth industrial revolution, it's here and changing how we work and live. How is the new technology of artificial intelligence, robotics and the Internet of Things different from anything we've experienced before and how will it impact our lives? What we're seeing now is that job loss isn't just people losing their job, they're losing their future. And I think that's what's leading to the despair, is the fact that you're not just losing your job temporarily during the downturn, it's gone forever and people are recognising that it's gone forever. Simon Wilkie is a Professor of Economics and the newly appointed Dean of Monash Business School. He spent 35 years doing research in the US, among his topics, a focus on the economics of the communication industries. He has served as Chief Economist for the US Federal Communications Commission and as Microsoft's Chief Economic Policy Strategist for four years. So, who better to talk about artificial intelligence, big data and the future of work? Welcome to Thought Capital. Professor, the fourth industrial revolution, how do you define that? The fourth industrial revolution is really about the transformation in the way that businesses, governments and enterprises operate due to a confluence of various technologies coming together. In particular, the mass adoption of sensors is generating vast amounts of data that were not available before. Cloud computing uh, means that now that data can be stored and analysed. Thirdly, the advances in artificial intelligence in the last few years have been quite dramatic. And finally, the large part of it is the communications revolution. So everybody can carry a smartphone. The cost of connectivity in terms of data have plummeted. So we can now have the Internet of Things. Together, this amounts to a revolution that I like to call universal ambient intelligence. That is... If you think about the third industrial revolution, the rise of computers and IT, that was really about democratizing the access to computing power or information, but it wasn't about democratizing intelligence. In terms of the outcome, though, how is the fourth different from the third? We didn't really see that much radical transformation in the economy through the third, right? We saw some tasks being automated, some tasks going away, but we didn't see... Uh, massive structural changes in the economy. We didn't really see massive dislocation. Now, that's what we're seeing. Uh, We're starting to see transformation in the way businesses operate, transformation in the nature of organizations, transformation in the nature of work. Um, The canonical example would be something like, you know, Airbnb disrupting the hotel industry or Uber uh, changing the way that people view transportation we're seeing transportation now viewed very much as a service rather than buying an asset like a car. Is there a payoff, though, in productivity? You're still, whether it's a taxi driver or an Uber driver, it's the same job. Are we getting a payoff for these revolutions? 
That's a great question. The economist Robert Solow uh, used to joke, uh, you can see the benefit of computers everywhere except in the productivity statistics. The same thing happened with the first industrial revolution. When we developed the steam engine, uh, we actually didn't see any pickup in productivity. The great increases in GDP and uh, productivity and really the quality of life happened in the second industrial revolution. When we got the automobile, we got the telephone, we got radio, we got electricity to houses. Uh, that's when life really changed. In that 20, 30-year period, the, the world changed dramatically. I think what we're seeing now is uh, the transformation such that the quality of life and what people do will be dramatically different. Is it still 20 years away, though, or closer? It's going on now, quite rapidly. So 20 years from now, we'll look back and be amazed at what's what happened through this period. Where uh, will we be in 20 years if you're game to forecast that far out? <laughs> Much of what's considered work now will not be done by humans. What we're seeing now is the dislocation with other types of jobs now that are going to be replaced uh, with algorithmic thinking, with data mining. And in particular, we're going to see humans have the time to specialize more heavily in what makes us human, I think. Um, everybody's focusing on the dislocation caused by this industrial revolution around the rise of artificial intelligence. But we're not actually focusing on what it gives us. <laughs> what it gives us is the ability to focus on what we do better than manual calculation or repetitive uh, tasks. So I think you're going to see humans concentrating more on the tasks that make us human and uh, re being engaged in more reward personally rewarding activities. There has been some kickback over the... Robots are coming to take all the jobs, hasn't there? Paul Krugman, for example, machinery's been taking over jobs for centuries, Correct. sometimes on big scale. Correct. What impact does it have on business? The impact on business is profound. In particular, it's changing the way that businesses uh, operate and do business. It's also raising profound questions about the nature of the firm. I think one thing you're going to see is, if you will, the rise of the pop-up firm. A problem arises that needs to be solved. A bunch of people will get together with a bunch of skills, running a business on the cloud, solve the problem, and then, poof, it's dissolved. The problem solved, we divide the rents between us, and we go away. Business will move to being much more flexible, much more ephemeral in that that sense airbnb and, and uber are an indication of, of of what's going to happen it's not just the gig economy it's going to be the gig corporation there's not something in the nature of any organism to want to self-perpetuate itself to <laughs> reproduce to move into another area so there is and uh i think what you're seeing there is the ones that will self-perpetuate are what we now call platforms right the thing that is going to be long uh, long living is the platform so you will have platforms and then you will have services operating on platforms that's the big structural change that we're going to see the promise or threat is that every section of society is changing or about to change with the new technology with automation robotics artificial intelligence the share economy many jobs changing disappearing do we need a greater political will to control the concentration of power that becomes possible, capital gaining a greater control of the economy? We are seeing tremendous amounts of dislocation. 
we need to have honest discussions as a society about the nature of that dislocation and also about the changing roles corporations will have, that educational institutions will have. Uh, we need to think more seriously about digital inclusion, more seriously about lifelong education, uh, retraining. Fundamental philosophical issues, purpose and self-worth, what does that mean? And we also need to recognize that in a world with platforms, platforms tend to tip uh, so that you get, for example, Facebook, very high degrees of concentration naturally occurring in platform industries and therefore high degrees of power, both in terms of the market and in terms of political power. So we need to have an honest discussion about all of this. Is big tech already too big? But the fang companies, too rich, <laughs> too powerful? They are enormously rich. And with that comes political power? With that comes political power, though... Um, I think the backlash against that at one level is the rise in populism. Uh, I think the two are probably somewhat linked. So it's not clear in terms of the political economy. I think Facebook or Google have entirely got their way in either the United States or in particular in Europe where um, Google has run into antitrust issues and Facebook is being investigated. But that's not to suggest that they don't have tremendous amounts of power. I think there are profound questions that need to be addressed in public policy terms about privacy and data use and data concentration. You've worked at a very high level for big tech, for Microsoft. Can we trust big tech? <laughs> we shouldn't put ourselves in the position of having to trust big tech. I think even big tech would agree with that. As with any phase or change, it comes with a lot of worry, the risk of losing your job, your skills not being sought anymore, being put out of business. Is it? It's very disturbing to think about on a broad scale. What do you think we should be worried, and how worried are you? I'm very worried that this is a tough time. It's going to be a tough time for a lot of people. The promise is not going to be recognised until we're further down the journey. So the rise of popularism, that's global. That's very troubling and very scary if you think of the last time that we saw this um, in the 1930s, again, after the the second industrial revolution. That's why I think society needs to have an honest dialogue and we need to have a plan about what to do. The concept of having people feel included in society and the real society, not the digital society, is something that needs to be profoundly addressed. Whereas the trend is to disenfranchise. The, the trend has been to disenfranchise I've been in the US for a long time, and so I'm more familiar with the situation there than I am in Australia, only having been back here for a little while. But there we're seeing very troubling trends. In particular, you might have heard that for the first time since the first Industrial Revolution, uh, life expectancy is falling. It's being driven entirely by one segment of society, the lower educated uh, whites. The root cause being um, isolation and despair. So increases in suicides, increases in alcoholism, increases in drug deaths through the opioid problem. So what we're seeing now isn't just people losing their job, they're losing their future. And I think that's what's leading to the despair, is the fact that you're not just losing your job temporarily during the downturn, it's gone forever. And typically the option is to move into a lower paying service job. And what we're seeing is the increase in employment in 
in lower paying, less satisfying service jobs. So we need to recognize that that's going on. We need to have a plan to transition to more satisfying jobs. As the data is exploited, those who own the data become more powerful. The people at the bottom of the chain less so. Do we have to look at something like a universal basic income? Do we need that sort of fundamental change to avoid the further rise of populism? That is currently Silicon Valley's preferred solution, right? Uh, There are many people there who think, oh, as we displace people, um, tax us a bit and then put the money into a fund and have universal basic income. That's an interesting idea. I don't think it's a panacea. I actually think the issues around self-worth and value and seeing a future for yourself and contributing to society in a way that generates self-esteem is not solved by universal basic income. So I think it's part of the solution, but we need to have more a more profound social network than just uh, the monetary security blanket. I think we need a real more profound social interaction. We've been looking at the downside mainly now. Yeah, yeah. What's the upside? What excites you about this this revolution? Tremendous opportunities for increases in human health. Let me give you an example. There's an app you can put on your smartphone. You can take a snap of um, a spot on your skin. It takes that image back to the cloud and analyzes it and can tell you with 97% accuracy whether it's a melanoma. The best skin surgeon in the world is about 95% accurate. (laughs) Your average GP is about 70% accurate. So what we've done is democratize what was previously very expensive intelligence, very expensive analytics that were available only to um, wealthy people in Beverly Hills, and we've made it available uh, in the bush in Africa, right? So health diagnostics is going to improve. We're going to see more competition in areas like um, insurance and financial products are going to be revolutionized. Uh, All of these things are going to increase human welfare and increase health and longevity, Uh, The other area that's showing tremendous promise is agriculture with IoT, just much more efficient use of pesticides and fertilizers, really dramatically reducing the harm done there and also dramatically increasing yields. The the numbers on that look spectacular. We're also going to see in the long run, I think, an improvement in in happiness as people do move into more rewarding fields of endeavor away from away from routine uh, less routine work yeah which companies impress you now obviously i think microsoft has done incredibly well amazon is just unbelievably data driven they're hiring an army of phds each year jeff bezos is pretty adamant that he wants people who do data analytics to replace experts <laughs> the management as soon as possible but beyond that i think The automobile industry is obviously an industry that's being disrupted as people move away from owning an automobile to viewing as just part of the transportation service package. I think Daimler is really ahead of the curve. I'm impressed with the way Daimler approaches um, some of these issues. To give you a non-corporate example, the city of Chicago is really data-driven. They have a chief data officer. They have a chief economist. They have a group analyzing their data, uh, even optimizing where they send the rat catcher. There are certain uh, institutions that are leading the way. Whether we like it or not, whether we're afraid of being left behind or not, we have to move forward and adapt. What skills will be important? What jobs will be around? 
the next generations? It's not so much skills as the mindset, right? I think you need the ability to be flexible and agile. The skills that are around design, the skills that are around empathy, connecting with other people, the fundamental things that make us human are the things that are going to be more valuable. And so ironically, what I'm saying is technology is making the soft skills more valuable. So we might replace the doctor with an app on your smartphone, but we'll keep the empathetic nurse. That's correct. The nurse will be more valuable, and even or the yoga instructor will be, be more valuable. If machines are getting so much smarter, the push now to learn to code, won't AI do that for us if it's any good? Well, that's the dirty little secret is we've already got software writing software. Having everybody learn how to write code is not a panacea. Having everybody understand what code is and not be afraid of it is really where society wants to be. I think we all want to be a we want to be cognizant and understand the benefits and the limitations that this is still just a tool. Professor Simon Wilkie, it's been great talking to you. Thank you. You've been listening to Thought Capital from Monash Business School. You can find more episodes on iTunes, Spotify and Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was produced by Tina Zanu, editor is Nadia Hume, sound production by Gareth Popplestone. Executive producer is Helen Westerman. Thought Capital is recorded at Monash School of Media, Film and Journalism.